1975, two agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms knocked on the door at 465 East 9th Street in Brooklyn, New York. They were investigating some illegal gun purchases up north in New Hampshire. There wasn't a lot to go on, but they had a check that was made out to a store in the city of Concord, which had been traced to the man who lived at 465 East 9th Street, a quiet security guard named George Harrison. Jack Holland describes the scene in his book, The American Connection. Harrison came to the door and welcomed the ATF agents in. He was 60 years old and had a full head of white hair and a distinctive Irish accent. The men sat down in the living room, and Harrison made a few cups of tea. The agents asked him a couple of questions about the guns and let him know that they planned to call him before a grand jury. Harrison said he understood and that he'd appear in court with his lawyers, which he later did. Strangely, at the grand jury meeting, he was only asked for his name and his address. That was it, and he was free to go. The two ATF agents eventually finished their tea, got up from the couch, and headed for the door. Harrison said his goodbyes and waved them off as they walked out onto the street. What they didn't know was that in the room next to where they had just been sitting were 200 rifles and 150,000 rounds of ammunition, all headed to the Irish Republican Army. An eight-week-long gun smuggling trial in New York's Brooklyn federal court went to the jury today. The question to be answered, were the defendants working for the IRA or the CIA? You're listening to Foreign Agent. My name is Nate Levy, and this is episode four. There were lots of people sending guns to the IRA. But in this episode, we'll tell the story of the rise and fall of the most successful IRA gun runner in the United States. The story stretches from a military base in North Carolina to the docks in New York, from garages crowded with guns to a special office in the FBI. The gun running operation reached across the country and across the Atlantic, but it was all run out of a little apartment in Brooklyn. The man at the heart of the conspiracy kept a low profile, while the British, Irish, and American governments went after Irish Northern Aid. Michael Flannery, who we met in episode two, was the public face of NORAID, and he always denied any connection to gun smuggling. He was a conservative, devout man who often made his case for the IRA by appealing to the story of George Washington and the American Revolution. You'd see Flannery up on stage at Irish Republican events across the country as the guest of honor or the master of ceremonies. In 1983, he was named the Grand Marshal of the New York City St. Patrick's Day Parade. Tens of thousands of people go every year. It's the world's largest. Naming Flannery to lead it was incredibly controversial, and he used the publicity to defend and advocate for the IRA's ongoing campaign. It even landed him on the ABC Nightly News, squaring off against the New York State Governor, Hugh Carey. The St. Patrick's Day Parade, will it ever be the same again? I want a parade next year, which will be a peaceful parade. I invite Mr. Flannery to come with us in initiative backing the duly elected Republic of Ireland people in the South, those in the North, to get Mrs. Thatcher to negotiate toward a united Ireland. All right, only 20 seconds left, Mr. Flannery. What do you say to the invitation? Uh, Mr. Carey couldn't be talking anything more foolish than he is about Mrs. Thatcher and her cup of tea. He knows very well in his heart that there can be no negotiations with England. Never has been. 
who carries condemning George Washington for fighting here and using violence. War is always violence. And if that's the only way, and history tells us the only way to get freedom, then it must be war. Although Flannery was the most visible militant Irish Republican, he only represented one pole of the movement, one side of the coin. The other was represented by the man who lived at 465 East 9th Street, George Harrison. Although they were close friends and had both played some role in the IRA when they were young, almost everything about Harrison was the opposite of Flannery. Michael Flannery was a lifelong member of a religious group that opposed the consumption of alcohol. For many years, George Harrison was a bartender. Flannery opposed the American entry into World War II, while Harrison fought in the U.S. Army in the Pacific. Flannery had a middle-class career as an actuary at MetLife, and Harrison worked on the docks and then as a security guard. But their most striking difference was in their political views. Flannery was a conservative Irish nationalist who was committed to the cause of Irish freedom and Irish freedom alone. Harrison was a revolutionary communist, and believed that the anti-colonial struggle in Ireland was connected to the struggles of African-Americans, Cubans, and the Vietnamese. Harrison was about a decade younger than Flannery. He was born in County Mayo, which is about 70 miles northwest of where Flannery grew up. He was from a large Republican family. Yeah, my mother was very much, she was a great cook. She always cooked meals of the fellas, you know, when they'd be on the run or something like that. And they always said, uh, they always got a meal or something like that, you know. This interview was recorded by an independent historian named Matthew Siegfried in 2004. When did you join the Republican movement? Uh, I think I was about 15 years old when I joined it. East Mayo Battalion, Irish Republican Army. His activities were mostly limited to training exercises and running messages. This was in the 1930s, years after the Easter Rising and Civil War. So the level of militancy was pretty low. In 1938, he left Ireland for good and came to New York City. He got his first job working as a bartender and then one as a longshoreman on the Brooklyn docks. He signed up for the Army and served until 1946. When he got back from the Pacific, he joined the James Connolly Club in the Bronx. The group was named for the Irish socialist who participated in the Easter Rising and was famously executed for his part in it. The club was a home for Irish Republicans who were part of the left wing of the movement. Connolly bought a place for us with his life's blood and he brought the labor movement into the vanguard. And uh, I had no difficulty in saying that uh, I'm a socialist like James Connolly. I'm not afraid of that word, you know. And if it uh, goes down to push against shove, I'm not, uh, I'm not ashamed to say that I'm a communist, you know. It was in the Connolly Club where Harrison got to know a man named Liam Cotter. They both worked as security guards and they became close, intimate friends. Cotter was an IRA man who'd been active in the organization in the 1930s and arrived in New York in 1949, shortly before Clan Gale, the old Republican support group, was about to see a major shakeup. I think when you see the reorganization of Clan Gale in the early 1950s and we see a similar reorganization with Sinn Féin, Figures like Paddy McGlogan being important. This is Robert Collins, who's recently published a book on the history of the Irish Northern Aid Committee. They look to the United States for support, and Harrison and another figure named Liam Cotter become the two key figures in the United States. And there's a third one as well, Owen McNamee, um, who become go-betweens. Cotter had been imprisoned in the early 1940s, along with thousands of others. 
including Patty McLogan, who was a rising leader within the Republican movement. In the 1950s and 60s, McLogan became the president of Sinn Féin. The other man, Owen McNamee, was the IRA chief of staff, the head of the organization in the early 1940s. Harrison would often call McNamee the emissary to preserve his anonymity. He died, uh, oh, I think it was 87. He's almost gone 20 years. He was a great Gaelic speaker, but very, very much underground, like, you know. He was actually, you know, a high-ranking officer. And then he had, uh, I think he was uh, head of the Northern Command. He was uh, pretty much a uh, Trotskyist, you know. I would be more or less Stalinist mm -hmm. in, uh, in my politics, but I could see his point of view too, you know. Mm -hmm. And it was about that time in the early 50s or late 40s that I met him, you know. These four men, Harrison, Cotter, McNamee, and McLogan, were the foundation of an arms smuggling network that would last from the late 1950s until the 1980s. Here's how it would work. Owen McNamee would make regular trips from Chicago to Ireland, where he'd get in touch with Patty McLogan to figure out what arms and material the IRA needed. Then McNamee would return to the U.S. and stop off in New York to deliver the shopping list to Harrison and Cotter. But they couldn't just walk into a hunting store and say they wanted 40 Armalite rifles. They needed a more flexible supplier. In the 1950s, Harrison was living with his parents in Brooklyn. And a few doors down lived the DeMeo family. George DeMeo was the man of the house. He claimed to have connections to the mafia. And he looked the part. He had high, angular eyebrows and dressed like a mafioso from the movies. He worked at gun stores in Brooklyn and Yonkers, and he was happy to sell Harrison whatever he could get his hands on. Harrison started out small, first just buying handguns, and then M1s, the weapon that most infantrymen carried in World War II. Later, Harrison was able to get heavier stuff, like machine guns. DeMeo had connections with guys across the country who would pay servicemen to steal weapons from the bases they were stationed on. This equipment was all sent to the IRA for their border campaign in the 1950s and 60s. They'd hit various military targets in the six counties with the goal of making British governance untenable in Northern Ireland. But the guns weren't nearly enough. The campaign never gained popular support in Ireland or the US and was eventually wound down in 1962. But the arms network that was built by Harrison, Cotter, McNamee, and McLogan, that would be of lasting importance. Obviously, this was an underground operation. But in a lot of ways, it was not particularly professional. A couple of guys would buy a handful of guns, polish them up, put them in flower delivery boxes, and then drive them down to the docks, where they'd hand them off to another set of people who would handle the overseas shipping. They kept a low profile, but not as low as you might imagine. Harrison and Cotter were political people, they were communists, and they wanted to contribute to all sorts of different struggles. In the 1950s, the 26th of July movement, the revolutionary organization led by Fidel Castro, was looking for a gun supplier in New York. And although he was a little cagey about it, it seems like Harrison helped them out. 
during the late fifties, like when Fidel, you know, when they were rebelling against uh, Batista, uh, we had a lot of contact with them then. They were looking for weapons then at that time, you know, and uh, friends meet friends and all this stuff and the other. Cotter and Harrison also worked in above-ground organizations, most notably Clan Nagale. I was just national secretary very briefly for Clan about a year and a half. But uh, it was really George Harrison and Liam, Con- Liam Cotter's organization around the nation. That's Chuck Lafferty, who knew and worked with both Harrison and Cotter for decades. They were all in the James Connolly Club and Clan Nagale together. And then Lafferty helped Harrison publish the American edition of The United Irishman, a Republican newspaper that was the official publication of Sinn Féin in Ireland. The newspaper kept us together on a national base. We started, I think in 56, simply writing, you know, little stories and uh, writing the headlines and some photographs. Yeah, we we did minor editing, but we were satellited on the Irish edition. Uh, We would replace the Irish stories that fit our needs. It was actually by publishing this newspaper that Harrison first came to the attention of federal authorities. In 1958, just after the height of McCarthyism, the Senate version of the House Un-American Activities Commission, which was called the Internal Security Subcommittee, published a list. On it were individuals who were suspected of communist activity and mass communications. George Harrison of 465 East 9th Street was named on page 81. By the early 1960s, it was becoming clear that the IRA's border campaign was a failure. And failure breeds recrimination. Patty McLogan, the Irish side of the smuggling network and president of Sinn Féin, was accused of undermining the operation. And in 1962, he handed in his resignation. The IRA was in a period of change with different ideological, tactical, and political tendencies lining up against each other. In the darkest sense, it was about assigning blame for the failure of the border campaign. More generously, you could say it was about experimenting with new forms of organizing and orienting the movement toward a more contemporary view of post-war Ireland. Whatever the case, Paddy McLogan would not be a part of it. In 1964, he was found dead in his home in Dublin. In his hand was a P-38 pistol, the type of weapon that George Harrison had sent over from the United States. Officially, his death was ruled an accident, but Harrison believed that he'd been murdered by British intelligence or his rivals within the IRA, what Harrison called the forces of revisionism, basically people who were interested in exploring parliamentary politics and dropping revolutionary armed struggle. Then as now, the ghost of McLaughlin stands between me and revisionism. The forces of revisionism that took the life of Paddy McLaughlin. Harrison and Cotter really grieved McLogan's death, and they grew deeply suspicious of the men leading the IRA. They just couldn't trust them, and they essentially dropped out of the movement because of it. Harrison and Cotter spent their time working with other political organizations, like the Black Panthers. How did you feel about uh, the rise of black militancy here? Well, same as the Radican lads in Belfast. So you would have equated what the Black Panther Party was doing with what people were trying to do in Belfast? Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say so, yeah. 
Did you have any relationships with, with the Black Panthers or? Oh, just in, in temporary, you know, walk with them and all this, that and the other. So you did work with them. How did the rest of the Irish Republican community here feel about you working with the Black Panthers? Well, uh, I was an embarrassment probably to some of them. A few years after the end of the border campaign, Owen McNamee, the IRA emissary, made a trip to New York. It was 1969 and the troubles were just beginning. The street movement in Northern Ireland was escalating, and there were riots and killings happening with increasing regularity. McNamee was sure that Ireland was heading for another war, and he wanted Harrison and Cotter to collect some weapons that could be sent to the North. The two hadn't forgotten about Paddy McLogan. It had only been a few years since his death, but they respected McNamee and agreed to hand over some of the weapons they still had laying around from the border campaign. A few months later, following dramatic riots in Derry, McNamee wrote to them again to ask for more weapons. The guns were already en route. A few months went by, and Joe Cahill and Dahi O'Connell, the two early leaders of the Provisionals, made a trip to New York. They met with Michael Flannery, who agreed to set up a relief organization, the Irish Northern Aid Committee. But O'Connell also set up a meeting with Liam Cotter and George Harrison. They met at Horn and Hardart, an old-style New York automat near Columbus Circle that served food via vending machines. The meeting ran over two hours, and O'Connell talked them through how he saw the conflict developing. He believed there was going to be an influx of British troops, and the IRA was going to need weapons to fight them. His request for Harrison and Cotter was pretty simple. He wanted them to reestablish the arms network that they had created in the 1950s, not just on an ad hoc basis, but now as the principal gun runners from the U.S. They said yes, but it wasn't a foregone conclusion that they would. The split between the official IRA and the provisionals is often cast as a split between left and right. The officials were described as being hardline communists who were more interested in Marxist theory and electoral politics than defending Catholics in the North. The provosts were sometimes described as little Irish fascists who clutched their rosary beads and only cared about a return to armed struggle. But it was more complicated than that. And the fact that Harrison and Cotter, who were committed communists, were willing to support the provosts makes that clear. As it happened, Harrison and Cotter would get guns for anyone who was going to use them. But it would be appropriate to say that, that you helped build up the provisionals into a force that could defend the communities. Yes, and then you had to... Um, we supported the uh, officials, like, until they pulled out in 72. Okay, so, so, so you, you weren't just supplying weapons to the provisionals, but also to the officials? Yes, as long as they continued to fight. Okay. I didn't. And then when they pulled out of the fight, well, then they didn't need them anymore, you know. In 1972... Just a few months after Bloody Sunday, the officials declared a ceasefire, effectively ending their campaign. This meant that George Harrison only had to get guns for the provosts, but that wouldn't be a problem. George DeMeo, the New York gun dealer, was still selling stolen army merchandise, and Harrison brought in a few people he trusted to round out the operation. This included Tommy Falvey, another former IRA man who Harrison had worked with in the 1950s. And again, they started by keeping things small, just sending handguns. But things escalated quickly, and a few months after O'Connell's visit, the emissary told them that he needed more modern weapons 
especially Armalites. George Harrison made sure that they got them, and by 1971 had established a regular supply, mostly via George de Mayo. At the same time, there were lots of other people trying to send guns to Ireland. There was people, you know, came along and for a while everybody wanted to be a gun runner, you know. This meant more attention from federal investigators who thought they could link guns arriving in Ireland to the Irish Northern Aid Committee. Norrie'd always said that there was a separation between the above-ground work that they did and the underground work that people like George Harrison did. But it's not like they were strangers, either. In the 1970s, Harrison would occasionally contribute short articles to Norrie's newspaper, and in other pieces, he was sometimes named as the head of various committees and the MC at Norrie-affiliated events. For a man who was at the heart of an international gun smuggling network, he wasn't above wanting to see his name in print. Of course, the Harrison de Mayo network wasn't the only way the IRA was getting guns. A study published by the Naval Postgraduate School in 1987 made it clear that the IRA was all about diversification. They had the New York network, but they also had people sending guns from Philadelphia, San Francisco, even Butte, Montana. The difference was, those guys got caught, and typically very quickly. There were also much larger arms transfers going on. For example, in 1973, Joe Cahill, who was the recipient of checks from Irish Northern Aid, was arrested at sea on a fishing boat coming from Libya. He had five tons of weapons on board. All these different operations meant that no single source had total leverage over the IRA, and conversely that the IRA weren't dependent on any single source. But if the Harrison de Mayo network was anything, it was dependable. Harrison and Cotter's partnership was always at risk from federal authorities, but their day jobs could be dangerous too. Harrison was a security guard for Brinks, the armored truck company, and Liam Cotter worked a similar gig for a company called Perlator. Early in the morning on April 12, 1976, Cotter and another guard named John Clark rolled up to the new Amsterdam Theater in Times Square. They were there to do a regular pickup of nightly receipts. Waiting for them inside was a small group of robbers holding 19 hostages. When Cotter and Clark walked in, they were shot. The robbers took off and left without any of the money. Both men died a few hours later at St. Clair's Hospital on 51st Street. Strangely, Cotter's death had nothing to do with the IRA. He was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Harrison was devastated. The two were incredibly close and had a connection that was forged by their political work and the risk of serious prison time. In the Norrie newspaper, Harrison wrote that Cotter, quote, remained an unbroken and unbending Republican to the end. His life and brave death are a fitting answer to those who would brand my comrade and his kind as terrorists. By 1977, the IRA had been pretty thoroughly penetrated by British intelligence. And in an effort to confront that, the organization began restructuring using a cellular model. The idea was to protect people and keep information siloed in case of arrest or infiltration. This restructuring had been pushed by younger provisionals, like Martin McGuinness, who would go on to become a leader in Sinn Féin and the Deputy First Minister of Northern Ireland. When McGuinness visited New York in 1977, 
He stayed at 465 East 9th Street, George Harrison's house. They bonded over their shared, intense commitment to armed struggle, and McGinnis explained the plan to reorganize the IRA. The next year, 1978, McGinnis was back, and he asked Harrison to become the commanding officer of the IRA in North America. Harrison turned him down. The ghost of Patty McLogan was still haunting him, and he just wasn't interested in rank. As a result, McGinnis began cultivating his own people in the U.S. and tried to establish new supply lines. While this should have meant greater diversity of sources for weapons, it also meant that they had to rely on people with less experience. Harrison's network was still running and remained tight around the same guys he'd always used, but the people at the edge of the network, those who were in charge of shipping and transporting weapons, those people were now linked to a new set of gunrunners. And that was trouble. In 1979, Harrison's crew had just secured a pretty large arms shipment, one of their biggest ever. 150 weapons and 60,000 rounds of ammunition. DeMeo had gotten it from his contacts at Camp Lejeune, a Marine base in North Carolina. Harrison and his crew cleaned the guns, packed them all up, and sent them out on a cargo vessel. They left the Brooklyn docks in September and was supposed to arrive in Dublin a month later. Someone involved on the New York side called Dublin and said the following phrase, the frigid air is on his way. It was not exactly a difficult code to break, and Irish intelligence was listening in on the line. They staked out the docks in Dublin and waited for the pickup. The IRA had gotten a tip from an inside source and left the guns where they were. Eventually, the Irish police opened the boxes. Some of the guns hadn't had their serial numbers removed, and they were quickly traced back to Camp Lejeune. Before I got to New York, Customs had an investigation which we in the community called the standard tools case. This is Lou Stevens, a retired FBI agent who worked in the New York office in the 1980s. And it was simply a shipment of arms that Harrison and his crew put together and put it in a big box labeled standard tools and shipped it to Ireland. Customs couldn't make the case. And it was a kind of a black mark on customs. The boxes they'd used to pack the weapons had come from a small shipping company called Standard Tools. It was run by an Irishman who was charged with gun smuggling, but his trial ended with a hung jury, although he was eventually convicted. The other lead, the link with Camp Lejeune, was much more promising. Pretty quickly, the local police and the FBI, who were investigating the arms network operating out of the Marine base, found that over 10 million rounds of ammunition had gone missing between 1973 and 1978. 90% of that went to right-wing survivalist groups, but 10% had gone to George DeMeo, who was arrested, convicted, and sentenced to 10 years in prison. At about the same time, Lou Stevens arrived at the New York office of the Federal Bureau of Investigation to set up a new squad. Squad 431. We had two or three people working Libyans, two or three people working Syria, two or three people working Iraq, two or three people working Iran. But truth be told, we were really... Really stretched thin. Really stretched thin. The FBI's mandate is primarily domestic, but it has a foreign counterintelligence branch. And Lou's squad was focused on investigating the U.S.-based support groups and agents of foreign terrorist organizations. At the time, a number of different federal agencies worked on gun-running cases involving the IRA. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms had some limited jurisdiction. The U.S. Customs Service 
had some jurisdiction, and the FBI had limited firearms, explosives jurisdiction. And it became clear uh, after some long discussions with the British that we weren't doing the job we were mandated to do. MI5, the British counterintelligence agency, met with Stevens and his team and asked them, almost begged them, to please focus on the IRA. And in August 1980, Lou got a big break. So one day I get a call, uh, and it's from an attorney up in Yonkers, New York, and he says, I have got something that might interest you. He said, uh, I have a client, George DeMail. He is convicted of selling or attempting to sell or possessing, I can't remember which, uh, automatic weapons. George was convinced that the judge was going to throw the book at him at sentencing because apparently the judge made a comment, the guy looks like a, a mafioso straight out of New York. And he did look like that. So he said, if you'll go to bat for me with the judge at sentencing, he would give me some critical information about weapons going to the IRA. He gave up George Harrison and Tommy Falvey. Names weren't enough. If DeMeo wanted his sentence cut, he was going to have to wear a wire and help the FBI catch Harrison in the act. He agreed. And so began an FBI operation codenamed Bushmill. DeMeo got in touch with Harrison and told him that he was going to prison, but he would introduce Harrison to a contact who would take over his role as supplier. On May 17th, DeMeo, Harrison, and Falvey met with the new guy, who was introduced as John White, but whose real name was John Winslow, an FBI agent working for Lou Stevens and Squad 431. They agreed on informal code words. Ammunition was food. Weapons were called fixtures or electrical appliances. At one point during this meeting, DeMeo told Harrison that he owed $800 for two rifles. Harrison pulled off one of his shoes and rolled down one of his socks. He had a wad of cash on the sole of his foot. He counted out eight $100 bills and handed them over to DeMeo. While this undercover operation was getting off the ground, Lou Stevens was stepping into some uncertain legal territory. In 1968, Congress passed the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act. Title III of that act set the guidelines for law enforcement wiretapping. But police and federal investigators like Lou often felt that the rules the law laid out made it unwieldy. In the mid-70s, the U.S. Senate began investigating domestic spying by federal intelligence agencies, and the Senate revealed that the FBI and others had been wiretapping enemies of the president and political activists like Martin Luther King Jr., in response, Ted Kennedy introduced legislation that was intended to create more oversight of federal surveillance activities, but it actually made wiretapping a lot easier in some cases. The law was called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA. It established the procedures for collecting intelligence information between foreign powers and agents of foreign powers that are suspected of espionage or terrorism. This law is still being used today, in 2016, the FBI was granted a FISA warrant to monitor Donald Trump's presidential campaign. But back in 1980, the law was still fairly new, and the FBI thought that the George Harrison case fit the bill. The Department of Justice 
was very reluctant to authorize the wholesale use of FISA because they were afraid that some judge somewhere was going to say, no, it's unconstitutional. But FISA did have a provision that said that if the FISA wiretap developed evidence of criminal activity, that information could be used in a criminal case. So we put the FISA wire on, on George Harrison's phone. This was actually one of the first times ever that a FISA wiretap was used. And they got all sorts of information connecting Harrison to people in the IRA. They started doing surveillance on Harrison himself and his home at 465 East 9th Street. Pretty soon they saw Joe Cahill, the Forrest Gump of the IRA, coming and going with some regularity. From the first meeting on May 17th, DeMeo set up a few more with John Winslow, Harrison, and Falvey. They were sort of leading incrementally to a final big purchase of submachine guns and ammunition that was supposed to take place on June 19th for $15,000. On June 18th, Winslow called Harrison. He said, the price has gone up. It was going to be $16,800. And then Harrison turned around and made the following call. Hello. And Michael. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'll see you, I would hope, between 8 and 9 tomorrow night. Very well, pile out. I'll, I'll go right to the house. Very good. And uh, make it as high as you can. Very good. The person on the other end of the line was Michael Flannery. And the phrase, as high as you can, meant that Harrison needed more money for the deal. This conversation was very significant for the government. It directly connected the public face of Norade with a major IRA gun smuggler. The next day, June 19th, Harrison worked a 13-hour shift, and then he headed to Jackson Heights in Queens to the house of Michael Flannery to pick up the money. It was a quick visit, but when he left Flannery's house, FBI agents said they saw him carrying a white envelope. It was later reported to have almost $17,000 in it. He hopped on the train and took it to see Tom Falvey. Soon after he arrived at Falvey's house, John Winslow showed up with a pickup truck. In the back were 25 MAC-10s, some AK-47s, Thompson submachine guns, and an Israeli-made Uzi, which Harrison was very excited about. They stacked it all in Falvey's garage and called it a night. With the deal done, Harrison grabbed his bag and hopped in Falvey's old Buick. They'd just begun to drive off when three cars surrounded them. FBI agents jumped out, and they ordered Harrison to hand over his bag. They were worried that he'd taken one of the weapons with them, and they couldn't risk it getting out of their control. Harrison held out the bag, and an agent looked inside. They'd made their move too early. All he found were two cans of beer. The surveillance was blown, so that night, officers from the Joint Terrorism Task Force raided Harrison's home in Brooklyn and Falvey's garage in Queens. They also went to the home of Patty Mullins, a friend of George Harrison, and found a huge load of other weapons and ammunition, including a flamethrower and a gigantic 20-millimeter cannon that could take down a helicopter. It took four guys to lift the cannon. It was that heavy. It was huge. I had no idea how they were ever going to get something like that to Ireland. I had no idea how they were even going to aim it. <laughs> but they took it. 
We've got a whole bunch of bomb-making materials, a whole bunch of weapons, automatic weapons, pistols, the whole thing. In September, they arrested Michael Flannery as he was leaving church. And then in April, they arrested Danny Gormley, who was described as the smuggling network's banker. Harrison, Falvey, Mullins, Gormley, and Flannery were going to trial. There were five counts levied against the defendants, ranging from conspiracy to destroying serial numbers. And they were facing some serious prison time. By this point in time, there had been quite a few prosecutions for gun running to the IRA. We met Ken Tierney of the Fort Worth Five back in episode one. He was represented by Frank Durkin of the law office O'Dwyer and Bernstein. Durkin was going to take this case too, and he brought on six other attorneys to help out, including Bill Mogulescu, who later became a New York State Supreme Court judge. They had a shitload of guns that they brought into the courtroom. If some other dude did it, defense wasn't going to really work all that well. Uh, the charges were exporting firearms without the appropriate government licensing. And a conspiracy. It wasn't possession of firearms. Well, they had a Second Amendment right to possess a, a cannon. But if you were the government, you didn't need an export license. But Harrison, Falvey, and Flannery, they weren't government employees. The defense was that they were doing it, they believed, with the permission of the CIA. Let that sink in. George Harrison, a communist security guard who had for decades smuggled guns that were stolen from the U.S. Marines to the Irish Republican Army, was going to argue in federal court that the CIA had been in on it. Here's how they built that argument. The defense team heard about a man named Earl Reddick, who was an associate of DeMeo. Reddick had heard DeMeo brag about his connections to the CIA a couple of times. Now, obviously, that wasn't enough. But a few years earlier, the two men had been on trial in North Carolina for smuggling guns to armed groups in Haiti. According to Reddick and his lawyer, one day in court, they were called into the judge's chambers. Some unknown men in suits were talking to the judge, who then announced that all the charges were being dropped against Reddick and DeMeo. According to Reddick, those men were from the CIA. So the defense claimed that these five Irishmen believed that DeMeo was working with the CIA. And once they had Reddick, they had some evidence that DeMeo really did have connections to the agency. And if that's true, then because the government doesn't need an export license, no crime has really been committed, even though they were caught with a 20-millimeter cannon. But before they could make that argument in front of a jury, the defense had to get the judge, John McLaughlin, to allow it. We came up with case law out of the Watergate prosecutions, which basically established that doing it with the permission of the government as a defense. And McLaughlin accepted that. And he wound up charging the jury, rather than making it our burden to have to establish that the government had to disprove it beyond a reasonable doubt. So with that argument in place, the trial really got started, and the whole thing was a national news event. The courtroom was packed with supporters from Irish Northern Aid, and Frank Durkin, the lead defense attorney, got up to make an opening statement. This was an infamous moment that often comes up when you ask people about the trial. 
This indictment, Frank said, charged George Harrison with conspiring to run guns to the IRA from June of 1980 until June of 1981. And Mr. Harrison is outraged at that indictment. There has not been a gun that has left these shores for Ireland in the past 20 years that didn't pass through his hands. Lou Stevens and the government prosecutors weren't ready for the CIA knew about it defense. The U.S. Attorney's Office thought it was a slam dunk because the evidence was so overwhelming, so overwhelming. But it turned to shit in a handbasket. The prosecution based its case on written affidavits from the different divisions of the CIA. They all said that they'd never heard of any George DeMeo. And you'd think this would be pretty definitive. The CIA was very clear. George DeMeo doesn't work for us. To rebut this, the defense team was going to have to argue that these paper denials were not what they seemed. That the CIA wouldn't have any problem lying about gun running plots, even under oath. So the defense team called in witnesses who would help them establish that possibility. They brought George DeMeo's associate, Earl Reddick, to the stand. He was a former Army intelligence agent who was now living in Paraguay. New York Magazine described him as a, quote, small, colorless man of 59. He told the court that he and DeMeo had sent guns to the IRA with the CIA's blessing. And he also recounted the story about how the charges against him and DeMeo were mysteriously dropped when CIA lawyers showed up at their trial. Then they called Ralph McGeehee, a former CIA case officer, who testified about the inner workings of CIA tradecraft. He explained that the agency lied all the time and would have no problem lying about having connections with someone like George DeMeo. McGeehee also helped establish the argument that it would be hard for someone like George Harrison to run so many guns for so many years without the CIA knowing about it. How did these folk manage to export guns for 15 years if the government didn't know about it? You know, it it just doesn't compute that, you know, Tom and George outfoxed the CIA, the FBI, the State Department. It doesn't compute. Next up was Ramsey Clark, the former U.S. Attorney General. We called Ramsey Clark about how when he was Attorney General, the CIA routinely lied to him as the Attorney General. So I said, we brought in real witnesses. That they, they came brought in paper, and th- and that was true, uh, you know. And then th- th- that's where the burden of the government having to disprove beyond a reasonable doubt came in. After all this testimony, these pieces of paper, the written affidavits, were not as authoritative as the government had hoped. But there's one person who the jury still had to hear from, George DeMeo. Now DeMeo had been given immunity on this, but he still had to take the stand, and it didn't go well. In fact, he pled the fifth on every question he was asked, all except one. When the defense asked if he was an agent of the Central Intelligence Agency, he said to the courtroom, no. But as New York Magazine later put it, in a trial where it's been established that the CIA will lie and deceive even under oath, that no ended up sounding a whole lot like a yes. But why? Why would the CIA have allowed these weapons to be sent to the IRA? The UK was an ally. The IRA, at least nominally, was a revolutionary socialist guerrilla group. Here's how Bill Mogulescu explained it. Because the CIA would want to keep their hands in stuff throughout the world 
this was just simply an effort of the CIA to gather information to the degree that they could about what was going on there, about the firearm pipeline. I, I mean, just, you know, at no major cost to themselves. It was an implausible argument, but it was all they had. Now, throughout the whole trial, the only defendant to take the stand was Michael Flannery. His testimony was a history of the Irish Republican movement about how he was an American patriot and an Irish patriot. And he testified about how he felt that how George Washington has this pretty much the same attitudes as me. He was very much an American patriot and he didn't like the English all that much. Flannery also testified that the money he gave Harrison, the $17,000 in that white envelope, was not money that came from Irish Northern aid. This is an important point. Remember, Flannery always insisted that Norried money never went to guns. Here's what he told an interviewer in 1994. Those people who were sending the arms over, I gave them money. And you lent them money from Norway or personally? Well, most of it wasn't from Norway. I made sure it wasn't from Norway. Because in Norway we put out a business. But I was getting plenty of money from people who were sympathetic only to the IRA. But I had no way to send the money over, so they asked me if I'd be an intermediary, and uh, I was. That was his typical line. But once, in 1989, he said something different to a Newsday reporter. Flannery said, quote, Of course at the time we swore that it wasn't, but actually it was Irish Northern Aid money. But nobody knew that. The defense also got to call character witnesses for the five men. They give a good sense of how different Michael Flannery was from George Harrison. Flannery called a priest and Samuel O'Reilly, a man who had actually fought in the 1916 rebellion. Harrison asked a representative of the African National Congress, the group that fought against apartheid in South Africa. He also called Bernadette Devlin McCallisky, the dairy socialist that we met in episode one. But the trial didn't really hinge on character witnesses. What really mattered was whether the jury believed the defendant's story. The defense rested its case on November 2nd, 1982. At 4.50 p.m., the jury filed out of the courtroom and began to deliberate. The rest of the country went to the polls. It was election day. Republicans took a hit and lost 27 seats to the Democrats. Two and a half days later, the jury had a verdict, and they returned to the courtroom at 2.40. The scene was legendary. The courtroom is packed. The jury comes in, four person gets up, and we hear not guilty verdicts. You know, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. So McLaughlin thanks the jurors. They go out, and the courtroom absolutely erupts and I mean erupts, sounding like the garden when the Knicks won the championship. And with this chant, IRA, USA, IRA, USA. The defendants and their lawyers marched out of the courtroom. They were swamped by supporters. George Harrison, who would never miss an opportunity to do some political work, started handing out pamphlets in support of the African National Congress and the Committee to Support the People of El Salvador. Then they all headed to the Clark Street Station bar, 
a block away. Apparently, even members of the jury came to celebrate, too. This trial was like almost an out-of-body experience. It is not often that one has the opportunity to kick the shit out of the CIA, the FBI, the State Department, MI5, and MI6, and the British Foreign Office, all at one time. We had it, and we did it. The victory was a high watermark for the Irish Northern Aid Committee, and the defendants' overwhelming support from Irish New Yorkers was a reflection of the strength of the Republican movement itself. Between August 1980, when George DeMeo's lawyer first called Lou Stevens, to November 1982, when the five defendants walked out of the Brooklyn Federal Courthouse, there'd been an upsurge of activity and support for the IRA, unlike anything else that happened during the Troubles, before or after. In the next episode, the hunger strikers in the Mays prison capture the imagination of Irish America and bring thousands of people to the streets. But the schisms in the movement threaten to pull Norid apart. This podcast is called Foreign Agent. It was created by me, Nate Levy, and my co-producer, Michael McCann. It's distributed by Navarra Media, and music is by Matt Huxley. The interview with George Harrison was recorded by Matthew Siegfried in 2004, and the interviews with Chuck Lafferty and Michael Flannery are courtesy of the Tamament Library at New York University. In researching this episode, we relied heavily on the following books, The American Connection by Jack Holland, Irish America and the Ulster Conflict by Andrew Wilson, and The Trial of the IRA Five by Thomas Fox. There's also a great long article by Shauna Alexander published by New York Magazine in 1982 about the trial called The Patriot Game. We'd also like to thank Robert Collins, who was incredibly helpful in the research for this episode. Robert's book, Norade in the Northern Ireland Troubles, 1970 to 1994, is out soon from Four Courts Press. 